From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26 and um, get your seatbelt on because I think it's one of those days. You know, sometimes as I prep these uh, messages and I'm, you know, studying and praying and developing it throughout the week, you know, I really don't know exactly how the Lord's going to use it, but today might be a seatbelt day. So if you have a seatbelt, put it on. Um, if you're new to church or you're new to our church, we, we take the Bible and we look at it and we learn from it. We believe that God has revealed himself through the word of God, through the Bible, through the scriptures, that it is the final authority for all things related to following Jesus. And so we look at it each week and we pull from it and apply it to our lives. And we've been venturing through the book of Mark for the larger portion of a year now, kind of venturing off when necessary to look at other different topics. But we're in Mark and Mark is a disciple of Peter. So he took Peter, if you know Peter, he's a disciple of Jesus. So Mark took Peter's eyewitness accounts and he put them into this story, this narrative that we have today. And he formulated in a way to really answer two questions. Who is this man, Jesus? And how did he become the Messianic King? So the first half of Mark, we've already been through that, is kind of who is Jesus. And the second half, where we are right now, is kind of how has he become the Messianic King? Pastor Mitch shared last week from the story of James and John and their outrageous request. They, they asked to sit at the right and left of Jesus when he entered into his kingdom, when he was crucified on the cross, not realizing what they were asking for. And Pastor Mitch kind of shared how we can often make faith and we can make life about us when in reality, faith is about laying down our dreams and our desires to pursue the life that God has for us. And as we look at the story today, we're kind of piggybacking onto that. In fact, if you've been tracking with us, a lot of what Mark is revealing now in Jesus as the story progresses and and we begin to see Jesus kind of revealing more and more who he is, is he's calling his followers to a life of self-sacrifice. It's less and less about these just practical teaching moments and more about following him and self-sacrificing, which in turn we believe leads to a life of fulfillment. So Mark chapter 11 I'm gonna pray and then we'll get started. So bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, we believe in you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather and worship together. And we just pray that as we look to your truth today, uh, we open our hearts, we open our minds, and we pray that you and you alone would speak to us. God, would you direct, Lord, me, God, as I speak, but would you ultimately penetrate every heart with the truth you want us to know? Lord, I pray that you'd lead us to a place of, of conviction and reflection of examination, Lord, and that you would transform us, God, by by your spirit in this place. We trust in you, God, and we bless you, and we focus our attention on you in the name of Jesus, amen. So Mark chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 12, it'll be on the screen, I believe, as well for you. So it says, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables 
of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city and in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And if you have a Bible, you'll see verse 26 is actually not in the book of Mark, but some early manuscripts include Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, which says this. It says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, if you have kids or young kids um, or nieces or nephews, or you just remember, um, they'll remember the toddler years. Remember the toddler years? Like those, those two to three-year-old years when kids are the cutest they could ever be and then something happens as they grow up, they lose, no, I'm just kidding, they don't lose their cuteness. But they're, they're the cutest they could ever be, but at the same time, they have these, these fits of like uncontrollable energy and, and angst and frustration you know, you know those things? Temper tantrums, remember those? Remember tan temper tantrums? Some of you do because you still throw them, right? You got man tantrums going on, you know? We're, we're, or people tantrums or just adult tantrums, right? I, 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 we have young kids, so we know this, this, this season of life all too well that when a little child who's becoming independent and learning that they're their own independent, you know, life form, uh, they have no way to vent frustrations when they're trying to stand their ground other than yell or you know, toss something or throw something or whip something that's nearby. It's incredibly cute when a little baby does it you know, and they, they just find something and throw, especially when it's Cheerios and they just go everywhere over the house. And, and there's a part of you as a parent that's just like, breathe deep. Breathe, it's okay, it's just Cheerios, you know? Or when, when a five-year-old gets frustrated and they say things in their frustration that is that's really quite, quite funny, like our five-year-old will sometimes say, I'm never playing ever again. And I'm just like, oh, okay, well, I guess I can sell all your toys then because earn some money, clear up some space, get my space back, you know? Jesus in this, in this text, if we, if we don't contextualize it, he can appear to be throwing a tantrum. Right, that he's not getting his way, that he's, that he's hangry and he's upset, and so he's just throwing things and, and tossing things and cursing fig trees, but that's not what's happening. He is making a scene, and in his righteous indignation, he's turning over tables and he's chasing people out of the temple because they've created or they turned the temple, this place of worship and prayer, into something that it's not supposed to be. And you and I, we have a tendency to take faith and to take following Jesus and to turn it into something it's not supposed to be. 
There's a, there's a faith that Jesus calls us to. There's a way to go about following Jesus and believing, and it's not reserved for a ritual that happens on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock for an hour. It's not something that's supposed to be just self-seeking, and even as I think Pastor Mitch shared this last week, where we just pull G- Jesus out like a genie in a bottle and we rub, rub the lamp whenever we need something. There's a deeper level that God is calling us to and calls followers to. So let's dig in. Let's take a look at this. I hope you're enjoying Mark. I really, I really am enjoying the book of Mark. So the story that, that we read today picks up um, right after Jesus enters Jerusalem in what's called the triumphal entry. Some of you may remember that. It's uh, what we remember on Palm Sunday. It's what begins the Holy Week, you know, and Jesus is kind of last week on earth. So as we, as we read this text right now, we're actually reading the week leading up to Easter, to, to resurrection, to death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's um, this story that we read today falls right after that. And you need to remember that the Jews had in their mind an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They had an expectation that this Messiah was going to come and he was going to come as this warrior king who was going to overthrow all oppressive rule and reign that they were experiencing and set up an earthly kingdom and, and, and set up Israel um, in this as a free nation once and for all. That was their expectation. And so Jesus entering into Jerusalem, they're hailing him as this coming king and they're laying down palm branches and there would have been thousands and thousands gathered for this moment. And if you look throughout history, History, um, kings often did this. They would, they would ride into town after coming out of a battle or um, maybe if they're a, a newly anointed king and the townspeople would come out and they would welcome the king and they would celebrate and they would worship. And so that is what's happening here. Um, but Jesus is doing something a little different. He's flipping the script. He's riding not on a war horse. He doesn't come with an entourage of soldiers, but he comes humbly on a donkey. And his, his entourage isn't filled with warriors, but it's filled with like fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors and, and, and weak people. He flips the script. He doesn't fit their expectation for king. He doesn't fit their image. In fact, if you look throughout the scriptures and you see the character of Jesus, he has these um, opposing character qualities in his life. He is both strong and yet he's weak. He is both powerful and yet he is humble. He embodies justice and yet extends incredible mercy. He has authority in teaching and authority over health. He's, he's healing people. He has authority over spirits. He's casting out demons. He has authority over nature and yet he's submissive. He's truth. He'll tell you just like it is. And yet he's got so much grace. He's conviction and he's love. He is God in the flesh. We believe he is God incarnate and yet he models what it means to be dependent on God. In all of this, we don't see any hypocrisy or division or conflict. Yet Jesus, in Jesus, we see this beautiful picture of diversity. So he comes into Jerusalem and they're hailing him as this king that they believe is the warrior gonna set up his earthly rule and reign. And he goes straight to the temple, but on the way, he's a little hungry. And he sees a tree, a fig tree, and he looks ahead to see if it's got any fruit on it. I don't know about you, but um, the term fig to me just sounds disgusting. Like, 
I don't know who decided that this was gonna be the English name for this, this thing, but figs just don't sound appetizing. Like, I don't even have to know what it looks like and I don't wanna eat it because you call it a fig. You remember, I don't know if you remember growing up, and I, apparently somebody told me this morning that these are still a thing, but fig Newtons. You remember fig Newtons, right? Delicious. <laughs> well, I remember watching commercials as kids, as a kid, and I was a picky eater as a kid, and I'm watching these commercials of other kids, like, mouthwatering over these fig Newton things. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, that looks disgusting. In fact, I think a picky eater took fig Newtons and said, I can make this better. Let's throw some icing on this thing, make it a little bit bigger, we'll put it in a toaster and what pops out, we'll call it Pop-Tarts, right? Because icing just fixes everything. How many of you, let's be honest, you're just having one of those days and you got some icing left over from that cake you baked long ago and you just grab a spoon, no one's looking around, you go in your fridge, you know, and then you double dip, right? Come on. You know, you're, you're afraid to answer, but we're, we all do that. So Jesus comes across this fig tree and he's looking ahead to see if it's got any fruit, but it has nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. And then he curses the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now it seems like Jesus is having a bad day. But what Mark actually does a lot is he takes these seemingly unconnected stories and he inserts them next to a main story like a sandwich. And, and a plain reading of them, they can seem disconnected, but when they're taken as a whole, they actually offer commentary to what's going on. So the main story in this case is the clearing of the temple. And this weird story of figs that's sandwiched on either end is, is kind of like an object lesson for the disciples later on. So we'll come to that. So he curses the tree, and then he enters the temple courts. Now, there's a lot of history surrounding the temple. And what we have here in this scene is actually the second temple, and it's been reconstructed by King Herod. He's added onto it. He's made it larger. And when you would first enter it, you would walk into something called the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations. Now, Gentile is a term that basically means anyone who's not a Jew. So you and me, unless you're of Jewish nationality, we're Gentiles. Now I have an image I wanna throw. Can we throw that image up of the temple here? So the, the bigger space there you're gonna see of the temple, that, that large, like inside the walls, but that larger area is the court of the Gentiles. It's the outermost point of the temple area. And this was the only place that a non-Jew could go. So if you and I lived in the time of Jesus and we went up to the temple to pray and worship, we could only enter into that area. Now also, this was the place where business was conducted. This was the place where money changers would set up to exchange money because often when you would come to pay the temple tax, you'd have to exchange, or maybe you wanted to buy an animal sacrifice, you'd have to exchange currency. And then what they would do is merchants would set up um, booths with, with lambs where they would sell animal sacrifices because sometimes traveling a long distance, you didn't want to bring the sacrifice with you because it wasn't like you could just shove it into the back of your van and, and drive there. It'd be a long journey, right? And so just for the convenience, they thought, let's set up some tables and we'll set up some animal sacrifices people can buy it and we'll make this worship thing convenient for people. And so it was a huge place. And when you'd walk into those, those, those temple courts, that court area, you would see hundreds and thousands of people, especially in a Passover week. In fact, the, the historian Josephus said that in one Passover, there was over 250,000 lambs sold in the temple courts. 250,000 people in this space. 
this outer court. And this outer court was the very place that the Gentile people, people like you and me, would come to find God. So Jesus says this, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables. He flipped them around. And the, the, um, the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? And he quoted from Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nation. So that was actually something that was written 700 years before this instant. And then he quotes from Jeremiah, he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. So question for you, let's reflect. You can talk to your neighbor about this or for your online, put it in the chat. What would your reaction be? What would your reaction be? You're in the temple, you're in this space, and then Jesus comes in. You believe he's the Messiah and he starts throwing over all this stuff. He starts throwing this fit. Like imagine he comes in here today. He starts throwing the chairs. He throws the cameras down and he just chases people out. What would your reaction be? Like, I think, I think we'd all freeze. I would. What's going on here? What's happening? Goodbye, passive Jesus, right? Goodbye, the fluffy, nice Jesus that we all think just is like the nice guy and he just loves everybody all the time. Jesus was humble, but he was not passive. In fact, if we go to the book of John, the Gospel of John, there's another instance that John records of Jesus clearing out the temple. And scholars actually believe it was a separate event, right? And in that story, Jesus made a whip and drove people out. Like he had time to fashion a whip together to drive people out. That's how serious Jesus is about temple worship, about prayer. Think about that. Jesus cares how we treat worship and how we treat prayer. Like, do we approach prayer carelessly or thoughtlessly or indifferent? Like a, like a child saying, you know, a prayer over food, like grace. You remember that? I'm, I remember as a kid growing up, I literally repeat the same thing every single time. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. That's what I'd say. Call it your turn to pray. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. Do we, do we approach it carelessly? Do we turn our worship and prayer into business transactions? I need this, you give me that, things are good, go. Maybe not necessarily on a Sunday, but how do we treat prayer and worship throughout the week? Do we pray so we can say that we said our prayers? Do we read the word because that's our religious duty? Check that off. Did my devotions today. What's next on the list? My house. It should be called a house of prayer for the nations. You've made it into something. It's not. You've made it into a den of robbers. So we see a different side of Jesus here, and it says that the people were amazed. They're amazed. They're not just shocked. They're amazed. And the chief priests, they actually began to fear Jesus and started to plot a way to kill him. So why are they so amazed at this? Like over, over the fact that he's, that he's literally thrown over tables, like making this giant scene. Why are they amazed? There's a couple reasons. The first is that there was this popular belief that when the Messiah showed up, 
that he would actually purge the temple, that he'd clear it out, that he'd cleanse it. But the people that he'd be cleansing and clearing out would be the, would be the heathen foreigners, that he would clear the temple of the Gentiles, that he would clear it of the unclean and the uncircumcised and the sinners that didn't belong. This was the messianic expectation. And they're hailing him as king, and here he goes. He's gonna go clear the temple. Get those Gentiles out of there. What's the Messiah do? He clears the temple, but he's actually advocating for the Gentiles. He says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, all people, everybody. And he's quoting the prophets as he's doing it. Here's what you need to know about the way of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's exclusive in teaching, but it's inclusive in that it's for everybody. It's exclusive in that the standard for holiness is high. Like the scriptures draw a very clear line where sin is. It's a, it's a high standard. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross because we can't meet the standard, right? We couldn't, we couldn't attain salvation because we weren't good enough to meet the line. So Jesus died on the cross, says you can't do it, you can't meet the standard, so I'm gonna meet it for you. That the standard is high, but it's inclusive and in that the call is for everybody to be a part of it. It doesn't matter gender, race, nationality, upbringing, experience, background, that does not exclude you from being invited to the table. Everyone is invited to salvation. All are called to follow. But the exclusive part is that if we choose not to based on the cost, we look at it and be like, man, uh, uh, then we don't get membership privileges. The call to salvation actually calls us to change to lay our life down even when it's really hard. And we desire to change because of what's been offered to us, right? Like if we really believe eternity is eternity, and if we really believe that something has separated us from the God who has created everything, if we really believe that to be true, and we do, then when he says, hey, you've messed up, but I've made a way for salvation, here's forgiveness, it's like, oh, that's, that's the best deal ever. Yes, I'll pay anything for that. I'll give my life for that. So I lay my life down because eternity is a really long time. You ever try to comprehend eternity? My kids try to comprehend it all the time. How long is it, dad? Forever. Well, how long is forever? Forever. Forever. It's a long time. But what Israel had done is they had made it difficult for outsiders to find God. They made it difficult and so Jesus is actually throwing out the separation of Jew and Gentile. He's basically saying now the unwashed pagan Gentile can go to God for prayer. They're welcome in. This is way before Paul, the apostle, was called as an apostle to the Gentile people. Second thing that was so shocking when he's chasing out the merchants and the money changers those that were selling the animals, is Jesus was throwing out the animal sacrificial system. He was throwing out the way in which people would atone for their wrongs, for their sin. Now, this would have been incredibly shocking for a Jew because how are you supposed to come before God if you can't sacrifice? How, how are we gonna stand before a holy God if we can't atone for our wrongs? What, what are we gonna do here? And if we go back all the way to the book of Genesis, right in the beginning, before sin entered the world, the Genesis is called beginning, we find that God created mankind and he put them in this beautiful garden called the Garden of Eden. Anybody remember that? You remember the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden was sort of like a temple. 
It was the place where God's presence dwelt with the people. It's where the people walked with God. It's where we had communion with God. But when the first people, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, and they began to center their lives around themselves, and they began to pursue something else, some other things to find significance other than God, we lost the garden. We lost the place where we could walk freely with the presence of God. And so Adam and Eve, the story goes, is they were banished, and something really weird takes place if you read the story, right? There's, a, there's this spiritual being called a cherubim that's placed at the uh, entrance to the garden, and then this flaming sword swaying back and forth, it says. What is this flaming sword? Well, scholars actually reveal to us that they, we believe it to, be, to represent eternal justice. It's a flaming sword of eternal justice. It's the righting of the wrong. So the only way back into the garden, the only way to get back into the presence of God was to go through the sword, right? The only way to get back into the place where we could walk with God was to go through the sword. It wasn't just enough to say, sorry, God, I messed up because that wouldn't be just, right? How many of you have ever been seriously wronged before and someone's just like, let's just say sorry and let things go back to normal and you're like, no! There's gotta be justice. Something inside of us cries out for justice. No one can get back into the presence of God unless they went through the sword. But who can survive the sword of eternal justice? No one. Well, if no one can survive it, how do we get back in? And one pastor said, this is the question that permeates the entire Old Testament. Mankind has rebelled. How do we make things right? And so what God did is he established the temple and animal sacrificial system, a temporary way to right the wrongs, right? And so the priest on behalf of the people would give sacrifices to atone for sin. And once a year, the the priest would take an animal sacrifice and he would go into the Holy of Holies to atone for sin but he couldn't get into the Holy Holies. That was the place, that was the innermost place of that temple pitch you saw, that they could only enter once a year, that they believed the presence of God dwelt. Only once a year, and he could not go in without a sacrifice. Why? Because no one can get into the presence of God without going through the sword. But it was a temporary system. And God's solution for this was Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 says this in Isaiah 53, it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was, the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. What does this mean? Jesus took the sword. Jesus went under the sword. And because Jesus, who had not sinned, took sin, the sword broke. The sword broke so that in Jesus, we all have access to God. Now, let's bring this back, okay? So why are they so startled by him overturning the tables? The chief priests are wanting to kill him because he's turning over their whole system for accessing God. And he's saying that now all people have access, even the Jews or the non-Jews, even the Gentiles. Jesus is essentially saying the whole temple, the current way, it's not enough. It's not working. And you're missing the point. You've made it into this ritual. You've made it into religious motions. You've made it into business transactions. 
He's going into the place of worship and prayer and through his righteous frustration, he's telling them, you've made this into something it's not. The question for you, what are things that you and I have made worship into that it's not supposed to be? What have we done to clog the temple? We've made it maybe into a 15-minute song set, sing-along, before the preacher comes up and preaches for time. Got my worship, band was great today. See you next week. Oh man, they were on fire today. Cannot wait until 167 hours later we can do this again for 15 minutes. We made worship into something it's not. How about prayer, turning prayer into a 30-second chant, if that, over meals? I prayed today. I asked that he would bless my McDonald's. Bless this greasy food to my body. You know, sometimes when I'm like praying over pizza or something, I'm thanking God that we have provision to eat. I'm like, God, I can't ask you to make this nourishment to me because I know it's terribly unhealthy. Make wise choices, Carl. (laughs) But I feel like he says, oh gosh, stop eating McDonald's, then I'll bless your food. I'm not God. Some of us have turned worship into something that takes place between the walls of this building. I love this. And I think this is so good. I think it's so powerful. I think it's meaningful. I think it's needed. I think it's necessary. The Bible says, do not get in the habit of not meeting together. But this is not church. This is institution. This is organization. What is the church? It's people. It's people who have identified together by their allegiance to Jesus Christ, connecting to the presence of God through relationship with Jesus in spirit and in truth. That's what the church is. Not going to a place to worship, but being a people who has the presence of God and can worship freely anywhere, anytime. If you stopped worshiping a year ago because of COVID, then you made worship into something it's not. We should do this. I long for this. When you guys aren't in the room, it sucks. Yes, I said that. It's not the same. I think this does something to our spirits. I think it's encouraging. I think it's life-giving. I think it's soul-replenishing. But if we rely on this for our worship, then we've made it into something it's not supposed to be. Jesus overthrew the temple system so that the holy of holies no longer existed in a place, but in a people. So the next day they go on and they come to the fig tree and the fig tree is completely dead. It gets withered. And Peter being the like guy who talks first all the time is like, Jesus, Rabbi, check it out. Look at it, look at it, look at it. Check it out. And then, and then Jesus, right, this becomes like an object lesson. So, so when, when that fig tree, um, in the spring, when a, a fig tree would, would produce these little nodules, these, these, these little uh, early figs as they're called, which were bland, but they were good to eat even though they weren't in season, right? But if you would come across a fig tree that had leaves but no early figs, it was actually a sign that the tree was either diseased or dying. 
So when Jesus looked ahead to see if there was any fruit on the fig tree and only found leaves, he found a diseased tree. He knew there was something wrong. Growth without fruit is a sign of decay, okay? So when Jesus saw the tree, he saw it diseased and it became this object lesson. Just like the people in the temple, Jesus finds the fig tree doing a job it's not supposed to do. There was something wrong with it, just like the people in the temple. In the temple... The business dealings, which were there in order so people could get access to worship, there was no real spirituality. People weren't actually praying. People weren't actually worshiping. They were were keeping Gentiles away from meeting God. They were ripping each other off. They were empty of authentic faith. And Jesus, when he says, "My, my house, he's not talking about the building. He's talking about the people in the building. You've made it into a den of robbers. So then he says this to the disciples when they look at the fig tree. He says, truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So Jesus is communicating a couple things for us, okay? The first is this, I believe, is that he wants more than busyness and religious motion, right? He wants us as as followers, as apprentices, to bear fruit that comes with centering our lives around him, walking in relationship with him. He wants us to produce righteousness, right living, godliness, fruit of the spirit. You know, he wants to know you He wants to know you intimately. He wants your heart and he'll settle for nothing else. Listen, I really care that you're here, but Jesus does not want your church attendance. Not like, okay, yeah, they made it. Good. Oh, they didn't. I'm gonna have a talk with them. He wants your heart. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants so much more for you than than just an empty religious life. He wants you to live the kind of life that you can actually believe the impossible is possible. He wants you to live the kind of life that mountains can move, that you can actually believe that you can say to the mountains in your life, move and be cast into the sea, the abyss, be gone forever, and then you can watch him do it. Like, what's your mountain? Addiction? Habitual sin, family problems, marriage problems, choices and consequences you have to live with because of your choices, kids, hard time with kids. He wants us to have a deeper faith that that would put us in the place where we would have the faith in him to move mountains and not doubt says, if you believe and not doubt, you could say to this mountain, move, and it'll be done. He's not interested in us just coming to church and then going and living our jobs. He wants our devotion. He wants us to have connectedness. He wants to move mountains in our life. You know, I was just talking with someone last week, shared last week to someone who is going through financial struggle And then the next day after we had that conversation, they were radically blessed and they were in tears that they were telling me. Like 
a mountain had been moved in their life. God moves mountains all the time. And he wants us to have faith that that kind of stuff actually happens. It's not just something I talk about and we're like, that was nice, and let's just go and live empty lives again. Authentic faith, real genuine faith. He's confronting empty religion and calling people back to a vibrant faith. So do you have a relationship with God where you actually pray? Like you, you talk with him and then you listen, like you spend time listening. Have you spent time listening to God? Like actually, like listen to him to, to say something to you or to nudge you or to lead you somewhere. And I'm not talking about an audible voice. I've never heard an audible voice, but just like a leading in your spirit, in your heart to do something or go somewhere. Have you spent time? Are you too busy? Business transactions. I don't got time for this. Let me tell you my problems and you go deal with it. You're gone. I'm done. I got places to go, people to see here. Jesus, what a good time to hear from you. Imagine, imagine you treated your spouse like that. Okay. Jody, you're, you've been talking way too long. I, I can only listen for like a few minutes here. Like time's up. Like, okay, I'm gonna listen to what the pastor said. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna say what I need to say. And then... 30 seconds, download, oh, this is too, I gotta go. Like, how would you feel as a spouse? I'd sit there for the 30, I'd wait till the time is up. I'd be like, if I'm not good enough for you to wait longer, I don't think I'm gonna talk. Like, do you have the kind of relationship where you listen to God? When was the last time you opened up the word of God and you let him speak to you? Like, you didn't just read it, but like you, you ate it, like you, you, you thought through it, you reflected on it. When was the last time you got on your hands and your knees and you cried out in prayer for intervention? You know, we spend a lot of time worrying about problems and not a lot of time praying about problems. If you took the amount of time you worried about something and you just turned it into prayer, man, mountains would move, right? We spend hours worrying about stuff. We just got on our hands and knees and cried out to a God who loves us. He claims to love us. We believe he loves us. We believe and preach he's a good father, right? If my kid did that to me, my kids are young. They don't have big problems yet. But if they did, I'd be doing something. Or I, maybe I'd be like, why didn't you come tell me? Well, I was talking to my friends about how worried I was about it, hoping you might do something. When was the last time you made room for him in your life and the business and business of your life? Second thing I think he's trying to communicate, and I'm gonna invite Mitch to come up here, Pastor Mitch, is your faith helps or hinders others' access to God. So Jesus was confronting our relationship with others. It's no coincidence that he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. See, he was advocating for the Gentiles to, to have access to God. Nothing you or I do should prohibit others from coming to God. But when we make faith in following Jesus into something it's not, we become a temple that's crowded and people can no longer find Jesus in us. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I clog the system? I cease to be a person of prayer. when I cease to build a connected faith, when I live empty religion, 
You know, I was, said this in the early service. You know, it's no wonder why non-Christian people don't want what Christians have. Your life looks the exact same as mine, except you spend an hour on Sunday morning doing something different when I sleep in and make pancakes. Why would I want what you have? Why would I need what you have? Maybe we've made a church into something it's not. So when we're trying to evangelize and tell people about Jesus, they're like, this Jesus you're talking about hasn't even changed your life yet. He's calling to authentic faith. How are the Gentiles gonna find God when you've made a business transaction for them? How are the non-Jews gonna get access to God when we clog the system? Like if we're not radically transformed by Jesus, how are others gonna find Jesus in me and through me? Like God is God and he can and will use anything. And God sometimes uses heathen people in the church to reach other heathen people outside the church. Look what Jesus says. He says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Like I can pray and I can worship and it can be empty even when I feel like it's not because of I've, I've been harboring something against someone. Elsewhere, the scriptures tell us that when you come and you bring a, a worship sacrifice, you bring something to the altar, leave it there and go reconcile to your brother first and then worship. Because God cares more about the reconciliation, the working of the heart, than the, just the lifting of the hands. Yeah, you, you lifted your hands and you sang, but it's lip service when you got hatred for somebody else over here. And listen, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm no better. I do that. Pastor, are you saying that God won't forgive me if I don't forgive someone else? I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. God is saying that. I'm just quoting him. It's a squeaky voice. That when we harbor something against someone, it reflects the fact that we haven't truly received forgiveness in the first place. So listen to this, this is what one pastor said. He says, if the forgiveness that we received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is so ineffective in our hearts that we are bent on holding unforgiving grudges and bitterness against someone else, we are not saved. Whew. We don't cherish the forgiveness. We don't trust in the forgiveness. We don't embrace and treasure this forgiveness. We are hypocrites. We cannot simultaneously receive forgiveness from God and not truly give forgiveness. It means that we haven't really been transformed by the forgiveness that's been offered us. And listen, I'm, I'm human. We all make mistakes, right? Because there's a part of us that feels like if I forgive, and you've heard this before, you've heard it preached probably thousands of times. Part of me feels like if I forgive, I'm letting them off the hook. And that is not true. Like there's still consequences for actions. Forgiveness lets you off the hook so that you can move forward, so that you can be whole, so that you can move in, in your faith. Bitterness is like drinking poison and hope someone else dies. I used to preach that to students like thousands of times all the time. Like when you harbor something, you're hoping they get impacted by you harboring that grudge. They can just go on with their life. When you forgive, you get it off of you. 
right? You take it off of you. There still might be consequences. The, the, the nature of things might change because of the wrong that's been had. But just so you know, Jesus went under the sword. That's why he died, was for justice. So justice can be served. Because do you know what? One day, we're all gonna stand before God and we have to give account. So the person that wronged you has to stand before God for how they wronged you. And that is a scary thought. But just like they have to stand before God, you have to stand before God. And I don't wanna stand before God and have him say, listen, you want me to forgive you and you're unwilling to forgive someone else? God doesn't talk like this. He's much kinder than I am. I'm not a kind person. <laughs> you, you expect forgiveness, but you're not willing to give? Because when we truly receive forgiveness from God, like when we radically wrap our heart and our mind around that, that transforms us. Like we recognize, wow, God forgave me of all the wrongs that I've done. Like think about the things that you do that nobody else knows. Like the dark corners that you've hidden from the world. He knows about them. And he says, I love you. And I'll still forgive you. And when we radically understand that, it changes us and transforms us. And then we start to realize, wow, he's forgiven me so much. How can I not? So when someone who's wronged us so terribly and it, and it hurts, I get it, it hurts so much. We can't even stand the fact of how can I, how can I let them off the hook? But we, we know, well, he's forgiven me. I, I can't not can't not. See, Jesus is, is confronting how we have relationship with other people. Our devotion to God impacts our relationships. Our devotion to God impacts others' relationship to God. How can I tell people about a forgiving God if I'm unwilling to forgive? Let me tell you about how God forgives your sin. And then I show hatred towards someone. What witness is that? Right? You say, pastor, man, this is sorry. I can't do that. You're right, you can't. That's why we need the spirit of God to touch us and transform us. Because we're not capable of saying, okay, good, step into it. I'm gonna go do that right now. I'm gonna leave this service, pick up the phone and call. I just can't do that in my own strength. But by the power of God working through me, I can do it. By the spirit of God empowering me to say, okay, do you know what? I'm gonna finally pick up the phone call. I'm gonna send the text message. Or just in my heart, I'm gonna let it go. Not because I have the strength and ability, but because I don't, but God has given me the strength and ability. So now I can do something that I thought was impossible. I can move the mountain of unforgiveness. I can move the mountain. Because God moves mountains. So where do we go from here? What's the practical application? Believe Jesus, trust him, that he can move mountains. Be devoted to Jesus. Remove some busyness from your life that clogs your ability and availability to pray and worship. You know, I've had the habit of when someone's asked me how you're doing, how's things going? Good, busy, good. That is a wrong answer. Busyness is not a good thing, people. It's good to be busy. I get it, but usually we wanna stay busy because it distracts us from maybe the more important things. There's something we've been trying to actively put into practice in our home 
is actually taking a Sabbath day, like a like an actual 24-hour period of rest, not just from work, but unpaid work, errands, cleaning, that stuff. We, we, we work really hard during the week to get things done so that we can literally have this full day off. And you know what? It's awesome. It's so awesome. Like we look forward to it. We're like, even my kids, they're like seven and five and two, and they're like, Sabbath is coming. Because we know we don't have to clean and do chores and we can just rest and we can be and we can worship and we can nap and, and we cut the busyness out of life. And we actually make room for God. Have a right relationship with other people. Let your faith be real and authentic and not a Sunday ritual. So we haven't done this in a while, but I believe that in the first service too, I believe we need to, that there may be someone who's never given their life, maybe online, truly to Jesus. Like actually confessed sin and chosen to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I wanna give us a chance. So what I want us to do is if you're home or here, everybody bow your heads. Nobody looking around, close your eyes. And if you're here today, and you wanna become a follower of Jesus, you wanna be identified as a believer in God, someone who's a part of the church, you wanna be saved from sin, you wanna receive forgiveness, you wanna invite Jesus to, to be Lord of your life. If that's you, nobody looking around, if you're at home, I just want you to raise your hand. You're saying, I'm in. I want forgiveness, I want God, I want Jesus. You're home, you can do the same. Wherever you are, just raise a hand. It's acknowledging. But would everyone just repeat after me, say, dear Jesus. Come on, say, dear Jesus, I confess my sin to you today. I need you. Forgive me and come into my life. Be my Lord, be my guide, and be my God. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's where I get excited about, you know, if you said that prayer in this room today, if you said it in your home, the Bible says there's actually more celebration in heaven because of one person who gives their life to Jesus than all the righteous. There's a party happening in heaven. There's a, there's a celebration happening. I imagine just Jesus being giddy, going, check it out, they're in, if you meant it. But I still wanna pray because there's the rest of us. And maybe we've made the temple into something it's not. Maybe we've been too busy, or we've made worship into busy business transactions and you know, we've clogged the system and We've made no room for God. And you say, listen, that's me and I need prayer. If that's you, no one look around, heads bowed. Would you just raise your hand? Say, man, that's me. Father, you see the hands and you know our hearts. We need you. 
We long for real authentic faith. We long to trust and believe that mountains can be moved. Give us the strength and help us to see, remove the scales from our eyes, Lord, and give us the ability, God, to remove the things from our life that, that cause us to be too busy for you. Lord, we receive the fullness of your presence, your forgiveness, your grace, transform us in such a way that those around God, we would extend forgiveness to, we would love and we would reflect Jesus so that all would see you in us. In Jesus' name, let us not just make worship about something that come, we do on Sunday morning. Lord, I love this, you know my heart. And I think this is, this is meaningful, God, but every other day help us to live a life of worship. In Jesus' name. Help us, Lord. We need your help. And God, I'm just thankful that you are a good God, that you're a loving Father, that you care for us, that you make a way. So work in us as only you can. And we give you all the glory. And we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Get under your seatbelt now. But here's my homework. When you leave this room and you go about your week, take a good hard look at your life and ask yourself, have I made the temple, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells now into something it's not supposed to be? Have I made it about business transactions and busyness? Just examine your life and the practical is do what is necessary to remove the things so that you can make room for God. If that means you gotta cut Netflix, then cut Netflix. If that means you need to put something away, put something away and spend some time with God, make room. Let the temple be what it's supposed to be, amen? Hey, listen, God bless you. Thank you for coming today. I'm praying for you and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message brought you closer with Jesus and gave you a better understanding of your walk with him today. If you would like to know more about who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at parkway.church.